Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today it's a sublime joy to be joined by polymath pioneer, producer, philosopher, environmentalist in more sense than one, color conductor, and toad in the hole tosser, Brian Eno. <laughs> From pioneering ambient music amongst other genres, along with ever evolving light paintings, production styles, installations, and strategies of surrender. Brian's work occupies a rare space in this world. There are a few people who truly get better with time, but Brian, having already started out as a trailblazer, a Roxy music founder and seminal producer early on, now seems to be burning ever brighter, never dwelling in the past, but continuing to embody and embetter the long now. Blender of colors and bender of genres when it comes to the truly mad and experimental, there is only one brain. You know that's an anagram of your name. <laughs> I do, yes. <laughs> and I know there's no more boring subject for you than you, but we're going to attempt to have a brief visit. So you and I originally met through the climate mm -hmm. artwork, and I remember we bonded initially both over the environment, but also over a, a shared loathing of NFTs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Hello, everybody. It's me. <laughs> just, just to let you know who this other voice is. Yes, so the NFT bubble was another one of those bubbles that I've seen quite a few of now in my life. And, you know, for about as much as 10 weeks, I was being bombarded with letters from people every day saying, it's time to make your NFT. Come on, you're going to lose out. It all sort of depended on this thing of, here's the moment where you can pick huge fortunes of low fruit if you'll only take advantage of it now. And I just wasn't very excited about it. I mean, the question I suppose I asked, and perhaps you did as well, is what does this actually produce in the world other than more money? That was about the only result I could see, really. It was a way of becoming more of a capitalist than we already were. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and in a way, taking the worst of the old art model and the worst of the new digital era economy and kind of combining the two. That's absolutely right. And as we know, two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> <laughs> they make a wronger. Yeah. Um, so the name of this show is called Orange Juice for the Years. It is taken from a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that goes. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. Mm -hmm. And I just want to know, Brian, what does that mean to you? I like Oliver Sacks quite a lot, but but just she can't argue with you. <laughs> yes, good. <laughs> Try answering back, you corpse. <laughs> but there was something Stephen Pinker said once that I thought was similarly kind of missing the point, where he said music is cheesecake for the ears. I understand how he got to that point. What he was saying is that our brain has an appetite to digest certain things and it wants to be doing it all the time so it will do it to whatever is presented to it and uh, music is carefully tuned to be like cheesecake it's it's the right amount of everything that your ears like you know just like cheesecake is the right amount of fat with the right amount of sugar and right amount of tartness mm. or whatever but I think all of these are based on the assumption that music is only to do with pleasure now of course pleasure is a huge part of it but pleasure is a huge part of eating food as well. But we know that food is not only to do with pleasure. Food does something else for us. 
we like it because it tastes good. But the tasting good is, is nature's way of getting us to eat it. Just like the feeling good is nature's way of getting us to have sex. Mm. So I don't think most people have sex because they want to have a baby. But nonetheless, they keep having sex. So, so it's true, Stephen Pink is right in the sense that we are sort of tuned up to want to enjoy certain things. But um, he's wrong in the sense of thinking that that enjoyment is, is self-fulfilling, that that's mm. all we're doing it for. So I started thinking about this when I was watching many years ago my youngest daughter playing with her dolls, Jet 3. She would put them in position, sitting next to one another, and that's it. Nothing ever changed except the story she told about them. And she would say, oh, this one is unhappy because this one has lost her shoe. Mm. But this one here is going to help find it. And she would just tell these quite complicated stories about how these three people were feeling, these three dolls were feeling. And I thought, yeah, this is what play is about. Play is about understanding how the world works in some way. Play is about setting up scenarios and seeing how you feel about them and getting a sense of where you stand, what things mean a lot to you and what things hurt you and what things move you. And then I thought, but that's exactly what art does, doesn't it? That's what art is about. Art is about playing with your feelings and being able to imagine different feelings. So I came up with this idea that children learn through play and adults play through art. Mm. So what we're doing when we're making art, I think, and enjoying it, is we're doing a kind of grown-up playing. But again, if you say playing, people think, oh, so it's not really serious then. No, but playing is fundamentally the most serious thing that we do because it's in playing that we model different futures, that we imagine what would it be like to live in a totalitarian state. We write the novel 1984. What would it be like to live in a future where we start to solve climate change. That's the novel, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. So what we're doing all the time, I think, is modelling other realities, other possible realities. That's what art does for us. It's the most important thing that humans do. So when people say, you're just playing, they're missing the point. Playing is very important. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, I rambled on a bit there. Sorry, I do ramble on quite a lot, by the way. It's not listening to you anymore. <laughs> yeah, even, even the even bloody, f even the phone has switched wow. off. let's see. I've actually bored the phone. Oh, no, it's still going. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, Brian, it's still going. <laughs> you haven't lost these fans. The, the phone fell asleep. <laughs> I saw it, it went black. <laughs> It said, oh, fucking hell, why didn't he stop and play some records or something like that? Exactly. Perfect segue. So I don't know if you're going to give it to me, but what was the first song that imprinted on you for us to play now? Well, the first song I actually wanted enough to persuade my sister to buy it for me as a record was um, Get a Job by The Silhouettes, which came out very early, 1957 or something like that though I probably didn't hear it until 1958. Mm. But where, where I grew up in Suffolk, we had a lot of American air bases around us, three within five miles of my town. So I lived in this tiny little village of 4,000 people with 17,000 GIs around wow. for whom this little village was the only place outside the base where... This is Woodbridge. Yeah, Woodbridge. 
So we had this ridiculous scene of this tiny little market town with enormous pink Cadillacs trying to negotiate tight corners in the streets. And it meant that all the jukeboxes in every... We had loads of cafes there because there was so much trade for them. And all the jukeboxes had American sort of southern R&B and... Wow, that was... It was what a, a great education. It really was. It was interesting because I loved this music and it was probably about another five or seven years before I realised that it was nearly all black music. Mm. I'd never seen pictures of any of the people doing this. I just thought this was this alien music from another place that I loved. And then, to my surprise, it was mostly black groups and a few Puerto Rican groups, mm. and then a sprinkling of white people. It reminded me of actually, I heard a program on the radio once, somebody interviewing people in England who'd been in England during the war when all the Americans arrived, because those American bases were built during the war. And they interviewed this old farmer in Devon, and the interviewer says in a very clear BBC accent, he said, um, so what was your impression of the Americans who came over in the 1940s? And the old farmer says, well, I thought they were all right, except the white ones. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was such a good unexpected yeah. response. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So now we're going to take a listen to Get a Job by the Silhouettes. Yep. Dip, 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 dip. And that was Get a Job by the Silhouettes. That was the first track that imprinted on Brian. And you were saying that, you know, you had all these jukeboxes that were playing a lot of American music. Wasn't it also from your sister Rita and her love affairs? Yes. So my sister Rita was older than me and she, like most of the young girls of our town, was much more impressed by the GIs with their big cars and abundant amounts of pocket money than by the local lads. So it caused a bit of friction if you went out with a with an American, if you were a girl, an English girl, and went out with an American, you were called a Yankee basher. <laughs> I remember that. That was considered a very insulting thing to say. Oh, she's a bloody Yankee basher, she is. And how old were you when you heard? That song, well, as I said, I think it came out in 1957. Mm. And I'm pretty sure I heard it by 1958, so I was 10 then. Okay. Because they had the, you know, whatever was a hit in America at the time was sort of on the basis a few weeks later or a few months later. And were you aware then that you were going to do the opposite and not get a job? I was very aware that I didn't want to get a job. Yeah. My dad was a postman, male man in America. (laughs) (laughs) Or as some joker once said, a person person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my dad was a person person. And... He worked shift work, so he would do mornings, afternoons, and nights. Then mornings, afternoons, nights. I'm literally getting your hand on (laughs) that. Oh, sorry, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. 
Sorry, Pete. <laughs> yeah, he, he changed shift every week. So it didn't occur to me until quite late on that it was like doing a flight to Los Angeles and staying there for a week, then back to London, mm. staying there for a week, back to Los Angeles, staying there for a week. His body must have been permanently trying to adjust. One of the odd things about him was that he used to take a thermos flask of tea to bed with him because he'd wake up in the night, have a cup of tea and a cigarette, go back to sleep again. His internal clock must have been all over the place. I remember very clearly one night or one evening him coming home and my mother putting dinner on the table in front of him. And he was so tired, he fell asleep into the dinner. Just couldn't stay upright, you know. And... I can really remember clearly thinking, I'm never going to do that. I just thought, I'm not going to get a job. And it was a thought that it was possible to entertain at that time because, you know, the welfare state had just started up. So you could get national assistance or dole. You'd get a small amount of money from the government to keep going as long as you pretended you were looking for a job. Mm. Healthcare was free. Education was free. So... It was actually quite possible to conceive of living outside of the world of jobs mm. and the routine of work, you know. Yes, yeah, so I decided I'm not going to get a job. I'm not going to do anything that feels like a job. So I went through art school, five years of free education, best thing that ever happened to me. And I left and didn't get a job. <laughs> and, I thought, I, I just want to stay open for something interesting to mm. come along. And something interesting did come along. I had sort of started experimenting with tape recorders and electronic music and so on. And then the group Roxy Music formed mm. and I was part of that. So Yeah, something interesting came along or you catalyzed something interesting. Going into Roxy Music, but also all of the experiments you were doing that were beyond music, you know, mm. it was visual and it was all senses, really. Did those different worlds always seem like they were interconnected for you, that you couldn't really pull them apart? No, it was the opposite, actually. The one thing that really worried me is that I didn't know how all these things connected to each other. So on the one hand, when I moved to London, or even before I moved to London, I was very much into the avant-garde music scene in England not as a performer, but as one of the 30 or so other people who were interested in it. And so I used to come to London when I was at college or when I lived here and go to see whatever was happening. John Cage played in London. Morton Feldman came over, Christian Wolfe. And then, of course, a lot of English experimental composers like Gavin Bryars and Cornelius Cardew. And I was really interested in all of that. And because I couldn't play any instruments... And because most of that music didn't require the ability to play instruments, I felt this is a place that I could do music. At the same time, I was very interested in pop music, in rock music, whatever we called it then. And I could not see the connection. I couldn't think of a way of connecting the two together properly. Well, that sort of started to develop for me in the 70s, where I started to think I could find a way of combining elements of both of them. But the other thing was I was also doing, and I had been since the mid-60s, I was working with light and doing quite new stuff with light. Light wasn't a medium that many people were using then because it was very clumsy. And I was making things and I had no idea how that connected with 
music. So I just had all these different balls in the air and I didn't really know. I just had faith that somehow they would, it would all make sense in the end. <laughs> and it did, actually. It still hasn't made complete sense. But over the years, I've started to realise that I'm working on one thing mm. and it comes out in different forms. But I feel that there is, there is a project at the centre of it all. What was the first record that really had an impact and what track are we going to hear? I would have to say the Velvet Underground's third album. I mean, I had been very impressed by a lot of music before that, but that was the record where I thought I could make this kind of music. I could do this. That's always been very important to me, the feeling that the first painter who really impressed me was Pete Mondrian. And it was, first of all, because his pictures seemed like absolute magic to me. I'd never seen anything like them. I was very young when I got into Mondrian, but at the same time as get a job, actually. I started looking at Mondrian's paintings. I had a little tiny book, about six inches by four inches, with pictures in there from his paintings. And the thrill was, first of all, it's magic. I just love these things. But the other thrill was, and I could do these. And indeed, when I started painting... I started doing sort of Mondrian-esque, constructivist, suprematist type of paintings. But with that Velvet Under, the third Velvet Underground album, I thought I love this album so much. And now I understand that you can deal with these kinds of feelings. Now I can make music, I think. It was partly realising that technically the album was quite simple. You know, you had Mo Tucker on drums. She was playing, most of the time, playing one drum. And you had Lou, who's not a brilliant guitar player, but the perfect guitar player mm. for that music. <laughs> so I thought, yes, this, this is music about the kind of feelings that I'm interested in. And so then with that, I thought, I want to do music. Perfect. What song are we going to hear? From that album. <sighs> That's hard to choose. Well, I'm going to name two and you can, okay. you can choose... No, I'll just name one, actually. Pale Blue Eyes. Sometimes I feel so happy Sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes I feel so happy But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad Linger on Your pale blue eyes Okay, that was Pale Blue Eyes by The Velvet Underground from the third album, and that was... Brian's choice as the first record that really imprinted or had a major impact on him because of it feeling like something you could do. Yeah. Didn't you give it away immediately? Yes, yes. I've never owned the album. It was funny. I never wanted to become I never wanted it to become familiar in a certain way. So the shock and the thrill of the first time I listened to it, it was so powerful for me. And I just didn't want it to have it playing in the background all the time. So I've, I've probably only listened to the album, which I still rate as a very important record for me. I've probably only listened to it 
10 times, okay. something like that. Maybe not even that many. Wow. But I have, I think I really have it in my head. It'd be very interesting to try this, actually. I, I'm sure I could reconstruct those songs. With your acapellic route. <laughs> well, no, I was thinking of, do you know Borges, the author? Mm -hmm. He wrote a brilliant book, a story called Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote. So it's about this obscure 19th century French literary scholar who decides that he's going to try to rewrite Don Quixote without looking at the original. He's read it a long time ago. but So he just starts trying to think himself into the mind of Cervantes writing Don Quixote in the 16th century. And uh, the story is very funny because he only succeeds in writing three paragraphs. And Borges quotes the three paragraphs. He quotes the three paragraphs from Cervantes. And then he quotes Menard's, Pierre Menard's three paragraphs. And they're absolutely identical to the last punctuation mark. But the brilliant thing about the story is that Borges says, first is a story of, you know, Cervantes was writing a story of feudal peasant life and blah, 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 and this and that and the other. He says, then he looks at the Pierre Menard version, which is totally identical, and says, in the context of post-revolutionary France, this is extraordinarily radical. <laughs> and so he sees an entirely different set of thoughts mm. in the same text. That was very important to me, that story, because, you know, one of the things that artists are always told to worry about is originality. Oh, you've got to be original. What the uh, Borges story says, no, it's not the form that has to be original mm. necessarily. The context can be original. The delivery can be original. The originality can come out in all sorts of places. It doesn't have to be in the obvious places. You know, at that time, there was a big thing for prog rock going on. And that was all about the idea that the development, the progression of music depended on increasing the complexity of it. So you've got these very complicated things in 7-4 and then in bars of 15-8 and blah, blah, blah. Then this Velvet Underground record came mm. out, the simplest, most understated record you can imagine. And it just blew those all away. And I thought, hmm, to be simple is very original. To be quiet is original. To be talking about feelings that other people aren't talking about is original. The originality doesn't have to be in the chords you're using mm. or, or in anything musical, actually. It doesn't have to be in the music. It can be in where you situate the music culturally. You're talking about play. And if we keep our sense of play alive mm -hmm. and our curiosity to really follow whatever scent or invisible thread then it's amazing, firstly, of course, where that takes you, but also the originality in the, the creation process that you end up going through mm -hmm. in following that trail or creating a trail. And I feel like it's very much connected as well with human beings really lose their ability to play. They lose a lot of their yeah. childlike qualities as they get older and as they get a job. And then almost one becomes so conscious of, you know, behaving in certain ways that originality almost feels like something you need to fabricate mm -hmm. you know, rather yes, than yes. just something that you find by going off and doing whatever you're into. Yeah, you know? that's, that's absolutely true. I think the most important thing to remember is you can't help being original unless you constrain yourself into not being original. 
every human being is original, mm. you know, and you can't help being original. But what you can do and what a lot of people end up doing is disguising the fact. They stop themselves from being original because it's awkward safer. or inconvenient. <laughs> yeah, it's safer, yeah. That's right. And you love the idea of complexity arising from simplicity because for a long time, I know you've talked about this in religion, it's the idea that, well, there must be a more complex being to have created all of this. Well, that's the thought I disagree with. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so then to look at nature and to look at these very intricate systems which have yeah. arisen from simplicity, um, is that something you were wanting to mirror through your work, through your art, and the different modes you were presenting it? Yeah, I've always liked economy, the idea of seeing how much you could do with how little. I think that's why Mondrian fascinated me. You know, Mondrian, you could describe his pictures almost in words. They're so simple. And <coughs> I think that's why Duop fascinated me as well, because, you know, it was just a bunch of guys singing most of the time and quite often without any instruments at all. So I always thought how incredible that you can get so much from, from something so simple. And funnily enough, we talked of play. My, one of my earliest games, I had a few games like this, but just to give you an example of one of them, I used to have this game where I would dig a little hole in the garden. Then I would pick up sticks, find sticks anywhere. And the rule was that no stick would be big enough to cross the hole of the hole, if you see what I mean. And then I would try to build a roof by threading them together and uh, covering them with mud, which I allowed to set. So I'd make a sort of wood and wattle roof. And the test was I'd ask my dad to jump on it. Wow. It had to be strong enough to support my dad. Luckily, my dad was quite a small man. He was so. a mimpin. <laughs> <laughs> but that was an example. That's the kind of thought experiment that always interested me, mm. is trying to set up a challenge like that. What could I do with this little material? Mm. Can I make it, can I magic it some way? Can I make it magic? And in a way, something like that is also connected with your connection with nature and ecology yeah. and the environment and, and that idea of waste and simplicity and how we really have been fed this idea of how we should be living, mm -hmm. of course, by corporations and a very capitalist you know, society that is so discordant with the natural world. But mm -hmm. it's also, we really don't need almost like 80% of what we think we need. Yeah. You know, what happened, I think, was that when consumerism really got going in the, say, the early part of the 20th century, it looked like liberation. Suddenly people felt that they had the freedom to buy all these wonderful different new choices of things and newly invented things. And it was freedom in a way, in a lot of cases for a lot of people, certainly for women in the sense that, you know, you suddenly had things like vacuum cleaners, washing machines that made life quite a lot less binding than it had been. But that appetite for consuming made a lot of people a lot of money. So mm. there was a, a lot of attention spent to keep accelerating the rate of consuming. And it wasn't really until about the 1960s, I'd say, that people started thinking, do I really want all this shit? Is it actually making my life better or is it making it worse? I mean, very interesting to me that Marie Kondo finally sort of hit the bullseye a few years ago 
by saying a message that is profoundly anti-capitalist, which is basically stop consuming. Yeah. You don't need so much. You'll be happier without so much. Yeah. I think she's very important in that respect. People laugh when I say that, but, but I think that idea of taking what was an art movement called minimalism or was a religious idea called Zen or, mm. you know, lots of the religions have this idea of simplicity, taking that into ordinary life and saying this should be part of your lifestyle was pretty radical, I think. Sorry, I'm sitting on a, I'm <laughs> sitting on a very creaky chair. <laughs> no, it's just you, Brian. There's no <laughs> those, chair. Those <laughs> my, He's not sitting on any chair. They're falsetto <laughs> farts, actually. <laughs> I was thinking this morning Pardon, sorry. About, um, about possessions, like literally that term. You think about being possessed by something and how that's negative. I really think, yeah, <clears> the more things we possess, the more we are possessed by them. Yeah. And it's... Everything requires attention. Mm. That's, that's the main thing, I think, to remember, that everything, every new thing you add requires attention. And I think the most important resource in the world right now is your attention. That's why huge industries exist to capture it. You know, Facebook, Google, everything exists to capture your attention and to monetize it in some way. So that my message to everyone now is don't get a job if you can avoid it and look after your attention. Really pay attention to your attention. Where is it? What's it doing? How often in the day do you actually have a time when your attention is not being taken up by somebody else or by something else? You know, we're always, we've got our phones with us all the time. So constantly being, I'm not a Luddite, you know, I have a fucking phone as well. And I use technology and everything else. But I keep finding myself thinking, I don't give much time to my own self any longer. So I now am in a habit of going out for a walk and leaving my phone behind. Mm. The first time you do it, you think, bloody hell, that's a bit weird. <laughs> To be, a, to be outside without a phone. But then you think after you've been walking for an hour and found that you've been having a lot of thoughts that weren't in your head before. Mm. So my feeling is, is this. You are either in input mode, which means you're taking stuff in, like you're eating. Mm. You're eating the world in some way in your brain. Or you're in output mode, which is where the stuff that's in you is coming up and has a chance of getting out into the world. And so I, I realised that I wanted to give more time to that second process of letting stuff bubble up from inside me. When I think also you can be in reciprocal mode where you are within your environment and you're responding to what's around you, mm -hmm. but you've got the attention of you, you've got the presence to really respond to yeah. the stimuli, positive stimuli, you know, not... your phone but maybe there's something there's a story you're in an environment and there's something that you're meant to be doing there or whatever yeah and I think often our yeah our receivers are so clogged up with all the irrelevant <laughs> shit yeah. that also is a distraction away from the core work but is very it's almost like the popularity contest no one can win yeah yeah do you know the word unmediated yeah yeah so what I find myself doing more and more is looking for unmediated experience. That means to say experience that hasn't been packaged 
up and smoothed off and delivered in convenient, saleable little chunks to me. I love that sort of thing. You know, I love movies and I love books and all the other things. But for fuck's sake, we're eating nonstop. Mm. You know, it's like we're constantly in the kitchen, gluing through the fridge, stuffing stuff into our mouth. That's mentally what we're doing all the time. You know those sad things of people who just stand in front of the fridge with the door open yeah. and they just never stop eating. <laughs> What's well, the character in Spirited Away? I don't know if you've seen Spirited yeah, Away. Yeah, yeah. No face consumed by needing to consume yes. and then you forget what you even are consuming anymore. Yes. And whether it's food or it's music or it's – and then everything has to get – more sugary mm -hmm. to get your attention or more That's shock true. tactic to get your attention. Yeah. And I think we're just sensorily numb yeah. from all the information. Yeah, we're saturated. Yeah. And you're quite right that the, the arms race is that, so it's got to be more shocking. I mean, I notice this in American entertainment so much that the speed of edits keeps increasing, for instance, in films and movies. The edits now are so quick and you can see it if you just walk past a house in America and you mm. see the whole the colour of the house is flickering. That's the edits on the TV screen. And you think, wouldn't it be nice to walk by and see it change much more slowly than that? <laughs> wouldn't that be different? Well, like Harold and Moore, that opening scene, I watched it again the other day. I don't know, before the first cut, it's maybe 12 minutes or yes. something. And you think how much can be conveyed also costs nothing to make, but it's good storytelling. Mm -hmm. you know? And there are a lot of things that will never go out of fashion and don't need to be constantly updated. And then, yeah, there are some things that can benefit from an update every now and then. Mm -hmm. you know? Have you ever seen the film Victoria? Yeah. Oh, I love that film. That's a single shot film. They shot the whole film between four and six o'clock one morning in Berlin. Yeah, it's a thriller, so it's a heist film. But it's so exciting to watch when you know that, that they are. this is actually real time that you're seeing. I recommend this film to all your <laughs> listeners. <laughs> okay, Brian, so now we're going to imagine you're sending music into space. What music are you sending into space? Or are you sending space into space? That's a big responsibility, sending music into space. I have been involved in sending something into space, you know but it wasn't music. Mm. I'm part of the Long Now Foundation, and one of our projects was called the Rosetta Disc, where we sent the disc with, I think it had 1,700 of the world's languages on it. It was a tiny disc this big. That big is about three and a half inches across, for those who can't see my hands now. And it was micro-etched, and it had about four paragraphs of text in each of 1,700 languages. So it was meant to be like the Rosetta Stone that we sent out into space in case any civilization, And it had a microscope with it because you didn't need to, an electronic system to read it. It was micro-etched, but there, you could Like actually, that glass disc I showed you. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So, so you could read it without any electronics, basically, because we couldn't assume that any other civilization that might find it would have electronics. As for music... I mean, if you really want to completely baffle, <laughs> if you want, want to completely baffle other civilizations, it would be quite interesting to send out some free jazz. They pick that up and they think, what the fuck are they doing? 
<laughs> of course, you don't know that other civilizations would ever have music. Mm. It's not necessary that that art form should exist. In fact, I can think of art forms that don't exist that could exist, or ones that do exist that could easily not exist. You know, like perfume is a, it's a quasi-art form, but it could be a really complicated art form like symphonic composition, but it isn't quite. So, bloody hell, it'd probably take years to really think this out. Um, you can edit out this long silence. No, I think this is part of it. <laughs> the pregnant silence. Well, I did do a piece once called New Space Music, which I imagined would be, at the time I made it, would be music that I would that could be broadcast out into space. Well, there you go, Brian. Like, well, wow. What's the... But I, I don't think it's... it's playing not, with us. It's not... But it's not released, is it? I don't know. Does it... Does it doesn't matter. No, I've got it. Oh, can you send some to me? Yeah, I've got it in that computer there, I think. Okay. New Space Music, it was called. And I designed the cover And now it's old for, space music. It's very old <laughs> space music. <laughs> Redundant space music. <laughs>
You co-founded Earth Percent, whose mission is to create a way for the music industry to donate royalties to the planet. What do you feel most buoyed by so far? Some very interesting things have happened in the last few weeks, which is that several really big foundations, philanthropic foundations, have decided that they're not going to try to exist for the next 100 years giving out grants to people. They're going to turn it all into cash within the next two or three years and immediately put it into climate change things. So suddenly a lot of money has appeared and we really need a lot of money to address this because we've still got the coal industry still Mm. fighting against it. We've still got a situation in America, fucking insanity, where weathermen, the weather women who refer to climate change are being threatened, getting death threats. So some guy has just retired from, I think, CBS in Wisconsin, I believe it was, Mm. because he said the death threats were just getting too much. He's had to move with his wife because he would talk about these sort of biblical storms that you're now seeing in America and say, well, this is clearly related to climate change and we can expect more of this in the future. People started saying, we're going to shut you up. Mm. Well, even Attenborough's latest documentary wasn't played on the BBC for the first time. They wouldn't broadcast it. Yeah, you know, that film Don't Look Up by Adam McKay was quite interesting in that it shows this thing that I've been seeing so much that as, as the evidence gets stronger the resistance to it gets stronger as well. The feeling of, no, it can't be so, because I don't want it to be so. It can't be true. But as I say, the good news is that a lot of these really big foundations are now starting to think, we've just got to put our billions into this. So that's the beginning of some good news, I Mm. think. And in terms of also the charity, is there anything that you feel buoyed by that you've achieved with it? Yes, We've started to build a community of people who are thinking about this. I think any solution to all of this is going to come down to communities. Communities, big ones and small ones, forming of people saying, let's get into this together. And the togetherness is, first of all, a joy. So it's not asking people to do something painful. It's really a pleasure when you suddenly find common cause with people and and you have a reason to come together and do something about it. But It's working. There are so many communities forming all the time. I mean, my studio has become this sort of beehive of conversation and meetings and people coming together about all of this. So it's exciting. It's exhausting too. And it's distracting. (laughs) I can't get much music done. Now imagining that you're no longer here, which would be very sad... I deny that possibility. <laughs> what is the music you'd have play at your funeral? My funeral. I saw the funniest funeral film the other day. Not a phrase you often hear, the funniest funeral film. It was an Irish guy who had himself buried, but he built he had built into the coffin some loudspeakers. <laughs> and so everybody's standing around. There's a film on YouTube you can see. Everybody's standing around like tears in their eyes and so on. The coffin goes down. And suddenly you hear this, hello, hello up there, let me out of this fucking box. (laughs) And I thought, what a great thing to do. What a great thing to do, you know, to go away leaving people laughing. Yeah. So Because you don't trust people that aren't funny. No, I don't really. That's the um, death knock. 
the, the death knoll. So having seen that film, I thought, I just think that's the best thing I've seen for ages. So I did come up with a, I have to get it. I, I came up with a little, what I want to be playing at my funeral. Are you just leaving? That's no, no, it. But... <laughs> and Brian got on a bus and he is now on his way to Notting Hill. So this is, this is what I thought should be playing as I, as I go down into the ground. <laughs> I think that would be quite nice to have that playing. Perfect. Okay. What is the music? What's the record you'd pass on to the next generation? Your daughters or more in general? And what track do you want us to play? Uh, I think it's probably this one. (laughs) Okay. To be continued... (laughs) And very last question, what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? And it doesn't really work today because you're wearing a blue shirt, but do you feel the future is bright, Brian? (laughs) (laughs) I often do wear future shirts. Um, I feel kind of a serious bifurcation. We either have fucked it all up and it's the end for us, Or else, if we succeed in getting through, we will have to change so many things for the better. We'll have to treat people more equally because we need them all on board to get us through this. We have to change our our understandings of economics. We have to forget all this gender shite that's going on and just say, let people be whatever they want and just let them be. We have to do so many things in order to survive. But if we do survive, then we will have got all of those things that needed fixing anyway. We'll have got them fixed. So I'm a sort of, I don't know what you call that kind of optimism Optimistic pessimist. Yeah, I'm 100% pessimistic and 100% optimistic. It's all or nothing, really. It's all or nothing. Wonderful. Thank you, BT. It's very nice to see you again. It's very nice to see you. Oh, do you want to join us? Is it what time? Yeah, yeah. So we'll start singing at seven. Yeah. But you're welcome to stay here. I just want to finish this thing I'm working on. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because it's somebody's birthday.